you thinking about making an Elms application this year? If so, don't hang about. Essentially getting on board now and getting ahead early and preparing yourself for when those changes are coming. Recently, the NFU launched a document called Leveling Up Rural Britain. In what way aren't we level? So if you look at things like broadband speed, the amount of resource that's put into policing in rural areas versus urban areas, the investment in infrastructure that's assigned to those uh, two areas, there are huge differences at times. NFU Deputy President Stuart Roberts will be here with the details a little later. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, hope you've had a good week. We'll also get the latest from the market's agronomy and congratulate a Lincolnshire farm that's seen success yet again. An emergency authorisation for the use of neonicotinoid seed treatment on this year's sugar beet crop will now not be used. Sean Sparling will tell us more in a few minutes. And farming businesses impacted by waste crime are being urged to air their views through a new survey wanting to tackle criminal waste activity. The Environment Agency survey will assess how farmers and landowners are impacted by waste crime and how regulation can be used more effectively to combat it. In particular, the agency wants to hear from farming businesses that have experienced significant inconvenience or financial implications. It's available online and will be open for responses until Monday the 22nd of March. Search Environment Agency National Waste Crime Survey or click the link on the Farming Programme Facebook page. And we're being asked to confidentially share evidence of the real prevalence of hair coursing. There are fears that the crime is being significantly underreported. The Yorkshire Agricultural Society has launched a survey in collaboration with the National Rural Crime Network, the NFU and the CLA. You can complete the hair coursing survey online, closing for responses on the 31st of March. Search Yorkshire Hair Coursing Survey or again, there's a link on our Facebook page. There's good news and bad news on the show front this week. Firstly, sadly, but perhaps not surprisingly, no Nottinghamshire show at Newark this year, and there's no Royal Highland show either, although they are looking at online alternatives. The National Sheep Association has postponed its major regional events due to take place between May and July. Also, the triennial Grassland UK will not now return until 2024. Good news, though, that the Great Yorkshire Show will take place this year on the 13th to the 15th of July, and I hope to see you there. The 2021 application window for the UK's Environmental Land Management Scheme, ELMS, is now open for agreements that will start on the 1st of January next year, and farmers wanting to take part in the scheme are being advised to get applications in as soon as you can. Hannah Joy, Environmental Services Specialist at Hutchinson's. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the Farming Programme, first of all. And we've talked uh, incessantly, it seems, about ELMS and BPS recently. BPS, we know, has been phased out. ELMS is, if it's the right word, replacing it. But just for those who've maybe been on a different farming planet uh, for the last year or so, Give me a sort of 30-second description of um, ELMS. Yeah, so ELMS is going to be the uh, replacement, if you want to call it that, of the current countryside stewardship scheme. It's set to be released in late 2024, um, and it's going to consist of three different elements. The first one being the sustainable farming incentive, um, and then the second one, you'll have this local nature recovery element, and then the third one, the, the highest one, will be a landscape nature recovery element as well. And it'll be very similar to the stewardship we have now in that farmers uh, will get on board with a scheme and they'll sign up to it and choose different options that suit the farm and suit the priorities in their area and then be paid and rewarded 
for doing those options on the farm. The national pilot uh, is going on this year and should start in September of this year for the scheme. And that's where we'll get a lot more information as to exactly how it's going to work. But until that point, it's a waiting game, unfortunately, to, to find out exactly what you'll be paid for what you need to do to be paid for those and, and what options are going to be available. Yes, yeah, very frustrating to say the least. Now, you've yeah. recommended, you're recommending that the application windows now open, get in there early. Why are, you suge- why are you saying that we need to get our applications in as soon as possible? Essentially, getting on board now and getting ahead early is preparing yourself for when those changes are coming so that it's not as much of a shock, if you want to call it that, um, when ELMS begins and if you do then go into it. So it's, it's better to get ahead now. We've already seen that the uptake this year has been really high already and we're, we're only just into March um, and the application window has only been open not even a month yet. Everyone knows in the past it's never really been due to the uptake, but if that uptake is there, then there is the chance that it may well become competitive. So it's better to get in there early and, and get an application together that you know is going to be the best it can be if it does become competitive so that you can be awarded a scheme. Right. And there there have been some changes, haven't there, to this year's applications? Some of the requirements have now moved to being recommendations, which is great. It's not as strict as it was in the past. They now have introduced an Uplands offer that's been expanded to allow more landowners to access more options. Educational access is now available to be used in the mid-tier agreements, which was only previously on higher-tier agreements. The main one is they've now introduced some air quality options, which will require the advice and approval from catchment-sensitive farming, but they've now been introduced and you can get paid for those. And there's now um, an increase on capital funding and the payments within that. So instead of the £10,000 cap, it's now up to £60,000 with a £20,000 limit within each of the option groups. Remember that the application window does have a deadline. So you need to make sure if you want to go in for mid-tier, you have to have your pack requested. Um, if it's going to be a paper one by the 28th of May, you then have a deadline to get the packs online by the 30th of June. And the 30th of July is the submission deadline. You have until then to get your applications in. And it's not the best of time the closer you get to that deadline on farm. So actually getting ahead now is, is the best thing that you can do and, and get it done and out the way. So you haven't got to be worrying closer to that date. Hannah Joy, Environmental Services Specialist at Hutchinson's. Thank you. Thank you. Last week saw the announcement of the winners of the latest Great Taste Awards and one Lincolnshire farm saw success yet again. Good morning, congratulations and tell us all about it. Jane Tomlinson, MD of Redhill Farm near Gainsborough. Hello Steve, thank you for having me on the programme for a start. So the Great Taste Awards basically are... Um, they're the most esteemed accredited <laughs> accreditation for any small-scale artisan food producer. We've won for 17 years in a row. We've won for every product that we produce. We've won countless two, three stars um, consistently. <laughs> and for out of those three stars, then they pick in the UK, there are eight golden forks, one for each region. So then you're up against any other three-star product in the whole region. It can be anything. We've been down for the last three, four times, and we've won three of those Golden Forks for the region. But this last year, they actually gave us Supreme Champion, which means 
that's 17 golden forks. So that's when it includes everybody else in the world. Um, so we beat things like a berry pork, which I'm really proud of because a lot of chefs think about that as the epitome of the best pork in the world. You're obviously clearly very, very proud of this and rightly so. And without giving away any kind of trade secrets, how do you do it? That's a lovely, lovely question. We've been asked this so many times and... It's just that attention to detail and the the fact that we are genuinely doing what we say we are. It's been really important for us to consistently prove this quality year in, year out, which we have done now for 17 years in a row. Everything we sell, we make here ourselves because of the quality of the pork and the way that we look after animals. We grow our own feed. We've never had disease here, so we never use antibiotics. That must be unique to the country Mm. for pork, you know? And if we're going to make something, then we make the very best example of something or we don't bother well just about sums it up really that's a (laughs) perfect answer jane tomlinson from redhill farm near gainsborough congratulations on the latest in a long line of awards great taste awards supreme champion thank you very much thank you for having me not much of a week weather-wise last week and a mixed week of weather to come we'll take a look at the forecast at the end of the program first sean sparling's here now to talk agronomy good morning sean Yes, very good morning to you, Steve. Yeah, March already is a week old then. What a horrible week it's been as well. Cold, wet, foggy, miserable, murky, blech, horrible, frosty. Um, and But drilling is a go-go. Spring beans, spring barley, spring wheat, all going in. Conditions vary, but thankfully as yet no nobody's mauled any spring barley in of mine that I've seen. And remember, spring barley won't thank you for being mauled in the ground. You're far better to drill well at the end of March than you are badly in the beginning or the middle of March. Uh, spring beans are slightly less fussy about conditions. As long as it's not soaking wet, they'll stand a slightly worse seed bed. So perhaps they'll be the priority on some of these fields. No sugar beet in yet. Fine sugar beet. Uh, seedbed conditions are going to be hard to come by for a couple of weeks yet so no point rushing sugar beet in just for the sake of doing it and for the sake of being the first one out there that those people who did that last year regretted it bitterly um, the optimum drilling date for sugar beet of course is the last week of March so there's plenty of time to get sugar beet in and the neonicotinoid derogation didn't happen then um, we didn't think it would because of the way the weather had been over this winter um, the integrated pest management criteria the IPM protocol that's something the NGOs seem to be ignoring. That's what we used and that's why we've made that decision. We've applied the rules of IPM using a virus forecasting system that we've used for over 55 years. That said no need for neonicotinoids, therefore we're not using them. So integrated pest management works and it's alive and well in modern agriculture. But it now seems very unlikely to me that we'll ever get another derogation of neonics in sugar beet. So therefore until we get reliable chemistry to deal with the problem of a in sugar beet um, because we're really struggling with the chemistry we've got or until we get gene editing technology which is mainstream which gives us varieties of sugar beet quickly that are resistant to that devastating family of viruses in sugar beet then perhaps the way British sugar contracts it growers to grow its sugar beet has to change I'm getting it said to me by a lot of people that perhaps those people who sign up to grow beet for British sugar they should have a clause in that contract so that if the BBRO virus forecast says on the 
the 1st of March that virus levels will be on a high, high level like they were last year because we've had a mild winter like 2019-20, those growers can pull out and put something else in the ground rather than have to sign up and be stuck with growing a crop like last year's crop, which has cost growers millions and millions of pounds because of awful yields and pitiful sugars, a lot of it as a result of that virus. So many growers will barely have covered their seed and establishment costs, let alone the growing costs of sugar beet last year. So people are saying to me they're wondering whether they're going to sign up to grow sugar beet next year, 2022 on, onward, unless there's some sort of get-out clause in the contract that relies upon that information from the BBRO virus forecasting system, or that if, unless we get insecticides which are capable of doing the job, unless we get neonics back, or unless we get gene editing technology so the varieties are coming on mainstream more quickly. So, uh, that's one to discuss, I think, going forward. So, pick your fields then for spring barley drilling, sugar beet, spring wheat, spring beans. Drill the good first and leave the bad and the ugly until last. It's still only the 6th of March. There's plenty of time. If you're putting spring barley, spring wheat, spring beans, and they're going into weedy land, black grassy land in cereals, or brassicary land and black grassy land with beans, then get those pre-ems on as soon as that drill leaves the field. Um, time is of the essence. Remember, spring cereals in particular, if you're using trial flufenicet, pendimethalin, prosulfocarb and others, they have to be on pre-emergence of the crop to a, a seed bed that's covering the seed with at least 40 mil of settled soil and you need to roll before you spray, not after. You have to have the seed deepened up, it has to be covered. Um, an even good seed bed with a good tilth and small clods is always going to give you far better results from the preems. But when it comes to black grass control, glyphosate is going to do by far the better job. That's why I say pick your field. That's why it's so vital. Let the black grassy fields green up, let it come, let burn the black grass off and start clean and then put a well-timed pre-em herbicide on. Nice and simple, isn't it? Spring beans, there are so few choices for post-em herbicides and weed control. I think we only have bentazone now. So make sure that if you've got a pre-em to go on, it goes on in good time and where it's needed. All seed rate then, starting to move. Soil temperatures fell back a couple of degrees this, this week on sands into the mid-sixes and below five on some of the heavier stuff but the rape is waking up there's lots of frost scorch out there and a lot of horrible looking rape crop but the new growth looks good it's mostly the old leaf dying off then there's only a little bit of cabbage stem flea beetle and rape winter stem weevil larvae about nothing like the biblical levels that we saw last year disease levels in all seed rape will remain low but foma and light leaf spot are about so do be prepared for when it does start to warm up because that light leaf spot will set off and as we only have protection it's temperature dependent we have to watch when the light leaf spot moving if that is when we need to protect the new growth of the all seed rape so timing is going to be everything as ever with all seed rape fungicides this time of year the late thistles mayweeds cranesbill cleaver you've still time to control all of those things but just watch as the temperatures warm up though because the Aussie rape's going to move very, very quickly and it will not wait for you to go and spray it. So keep a very close eye on the on the buds in the Aussie rape because as they start to move clear of the leaves, that's when your cut-off is for most of these herbicides. And keep your agronomist phone number handy in case you need to ring him at 6 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Wheats are starting to move too. Yellowrust, very widespread, but I've seen nothing that makes me want to panic or write a T-minus zero ticket unlike some people out there. Monitor the 
the rust, map it, be prepared. But an extra cost and fungicide, the extra pass of a fungicide between now and T0, which will happen in a couple of weeks' time, is um, certainly on the crops I'm looking after, seems a complete overreaction and a waste of time and money. Unless it's swamping the crop, which is very unlikely, a T0 fungicide with triazole like tebuconazole or an azoxystrobin included that applied in 14 days time at growth stage 30 will deal with the problem for you it's all about temperature now as we move forward of course the favorite word filicron comes into play temperature dependent everything to do with what we're doing how quickly it happens how slowly it happens how the disease moves all to do with temperatures um, soil and air temperatures moving forward so if it stays cold like this the disease and the crop growth alike will be similarly slow so that's it then things are waking up six days of march behind us could still get some winter yet um let's see what the next seven days bring good morning thanks as ever sean sparling sparling agronomy services last week at the nfu conference they launched a document called leveling up rural britain well written well produced and definitely well worth a read stuart roberts nfu deputy president how are we not level at the moment it's a it's, it's a great question steve for probably the last year we've heard politicians of of all persuasions talking about the importance of leveling up and in general what they have meant by that is leveling up between the north and the south that seems to be where where uh, the examples come but actually what we know is it's just as important to level up between urban and rural areas so if you look at things like broadband speed if you look at things like the amount of resource that's put into policing in rural areas versus urban areas uh, if you look at the investment in infrastructure that's assigned to those uh, two areas there are huge differences at times and and it's really important that when whenever we talk about leveling up we don't just talk about North v South or, or London v the rest of the country. We also importantly look at uh, urban areas versus rural areas and ensure that rural areas are getting a, a fair crack of the whip when it comes to future investment and future opportunities. We'll talk about one or two sort of specific areas in just a moment, but what's the overall purpose of the document? Is this something that's going to government or an awareness document? What's the purpose of it? Yeah, it's, it, as much as anything, it's to raise awareness with government and, and not let uh, politicians forget about the, the the importance of rural areas. It's also... It's, it's not a negative document. For me, it's a very positive document in terms of the opportunities for economic growth, for jobs, for inward investment in rural areas, and how government can help unlock that by ensuring that they put in place the infrastructure or the resources that we need. The obvious one is broadband, Steve, where you know we are way behind uh, many urban parts of the country. Um, often farmers struggle with, with simple broadband connection today. Some investment in that could unlock huge opportunities for data sharing, for business opportunities going forward. We see it as very much a positive platform uh, going forward and, and letting rural communities unlock their full potential. Well, it's interesting you talk about broadband uh, because that has connotations in, in numerous directions. I was talking with uh, Jane from Redhill Farm near Gainsborough earlier on in the programme and we couldn't get hold of each other for about three days because of the problems with broadband connectivity. And she will have lost quite a fair bit of business as a result of that. Secondly is the move towards new technology, much of which relies on broadband. And without that, 
we're not going anywhere. Uh, absolutely. You know, we, we talk. Uh, in fact, when I was at the, the Lincolnshire show last or year before last year, I was talking to some guys there about using robotic technology, about using new data analytics to improve productivity. Well, you can't do that if you can't get a decent connection. And, and this is uh, very much an issue across the whole of the rural landscape. Um, and I think businesses have got huge opportunities. But if you can't get hold of each other, if you can't have broadband speeds uh, as quick as you need them, and at the moment, our survey shows only about 40% of farmers have got broadband speeds that are sufficient for their business needs today, let alone what they need for them for tomorrow. And every time there's a report in this area, the, the deadline, if you like, for levelling up that broadband connectivity gets pushed further and further down the line, something we've got to see significant investment in over the next few years. And one thing you talk about in the document is rural business, because we tend to focus a lot on farming, food production and everything that goes with it. But of course, there's an awful lot more to the rural economy than farms. Many farms have diversified into other types of business. So letting out properties on their land and farm shops and things like that. Rural business is is such a, a key area, isn't it? Uh, it is. And, and look, entire rural communities are built off the back of of that rural economy, which, as you say, is, is farming at its heart, but many other rural businesses off the back. And one of the other areas that, that we're really keen to focus attention on is planning, for example. You know, we've got to have a planning system that, that helps farms modernise, helps diversification, help with rural housing, helps with those other rural businesses, as you say. And there are opportunities there in the government's white paper, but at the moment, too often that planning uh, system in rural areas is getting in the way of progress for those rural businesses. More from Stuart Roberts on levelling up rural Britain in the farming programme next week. And in the meantime, you can read the report at nfuonline.com. Time to see what the markets have been doing this week with Open Fields Kit Dickinson. Morning, Kit. Good morning, Steve. The rollercoaster ride on the market shows no sign of abating, particularly on wheat which can't make up its mind whether the recent record cold snap across the US has damaged wheat or not. Soybeans and maize are deriving strength from a less than ideal weather conditions in South America, but even here, analysts appear to be earing on the optimistic size for crop sizes. Adding to the confusion are the money flows in the macroeconomic marketplace as it tries to decide where the best place to place its bets are going to be post the pandemic. The annual race of who can forecast the biggest global wheat number production appears to have kicked off early among analysts and pundits this year. The highlights so far from what I can see are 12 to 15 million metric tonnes up in the EU and US, this is including the UK, down 10 million metric tonnes in Russia, down 8 million metric tonnes in Australia and down 2 million metric tonnes in Canada. One area of disagreement is India, where their ministry forecast a 109 million metric tonnes, although local traders are less optimistic in the range of 100 to 104. So on the face of it, there will be no more wheat next year for the main export players. But perhaps, importantly, what will the post-pandemic demand look like as the global economy reboots? Old crop markets remain firm despite the AHDB and the EU Commission's best efforts to make the numbers fit, which was best demonstrated by the soon-to-expire March 21 Matif contract, which went to a £20 premium on May the 21st, as prices surged higher and shorts scrambled to get out. 
EU wheat exports this week were just under the 1 million metric tonne, whereas maize exports were a paltry 140,000, as the balance sheet continues to tighten. The UK market remains relatively subdued in comparison, but the crunch is likely to come as we enter the business end of the season, and will demand on the weather and the old crop be much talked about as we import wheat and maize. Will this wheat and maize turn up on time or will we limp into new crop on bare boards to be created by the prospect of feeding two ethanol plants now that E10 fuel has been approved? So moving on to malting barley, good field work progress made over the week with compliant weather across most of the country. Domestic markets have seen some limited interest from the end of the season, but deliveries will be little in the trade. The market awaits consumer ideas on the return of the demand and what this means for the end of 2020 campaign and the beginning of 2021. Oil sea rate, an explosive week for the market with values gaining around £20 on the back of bullish sentiment. Weather stories and crop production ideas in South America have been the main driver, with the Chinese buying of oilseed complex products the other. Poor weather, wet in North Brazil and dry in Argentina, has kept attention on production levels in these countries. The USDA World Supply and Demand Report is due out next week. This could possibly see another swerve by the department by not making adjustments as this report to South American production and US ending stocks. US plant intention report is due out at the end of March and will be keenly watched. So looking forward to the prices this week. Feed wheat from March 205 to 207, May 208 to 210, July 210 to 212. Looking forward to November new crop. 169 to 171. For milling wheat premiums, please get in touch with your open field farm business manager. Feed barley for March 154 to 156, moving up in May to 161 to 163. New crop July 142 to 144, November 149 to 151. Old crop malting barley premiums are currently £12 for a 185 nitrogen. A new crop is trading at the moment at £20 for a 185 nitrogen. Oil seed rate, March 427 to 430, May 430 to 433. New crop, July 348 to 350, and November 358 to 360. Many thanks, Kit. That's Kit Dickinson from Openfield. Back same time next week. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Well, a mostly dry start, but there's wind and rain expected around the middle of the week. A chilly start with highs of 7 Celsius today and a light westerly breeze. Mostly dry with sunny spells later, down to 1 Celsius overnight. Mostly dry for Monday with a single-figure breeze from the southwest, highs around 9 Celsius. Rain's expected on Tuesday and Wednesday with some gusty winds both days, but milder with highs of 11. And after a mild night, it'll be cooler on Thursday with plenty of rain and westerly winds in the 30s, gusting up to 50 miles. Per hour. The week ends with brisk winds from the southwest, some light rain, and highs of 10. Finally, it's International Women's Day tomorrow, and you are cordially invited to attend an online evening with Diane Westernage of Westernage Farms, Claire Whittle from LLM Farm Vets, Rachel Hallis of Beeston Hall Farm, and chairing the evening, Sarah Bell, LNR Council Delegate. The evening will be introduced by NFU President Minette Batters. And if you'd like to attend, email east.midlands at nfu.org.uk. I'm Steve Orchard. Until next week, at the same time, have a safe, productive and good farming week.